Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I, my, I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I cannot exercise self-control. They should marry. But if, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do, you, do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have word, word, worldly troubles, and I will, would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wishes, wives live, through, live as though they have none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, hey, good morning. Uh, My name is Nate. If I haven't met you yet, it's good to be with you. Uh, we are in our final week in our Gospel and Sexuality series, and uh, just up front, um, I just want to say how grateful I am uh, for this congregation. Uh, This has not been an easy series, and yet, as I've had conversations after the service um, in our city group, as we've kind of discussed all these different issues, um, I just want to commend you, Um, really encourage. This has not been easy conversations, but I feel like along the way, like there's just been this leaning in. And so just really grateful for that. Uh, Having said all of that, we are in the heart of this letter that Paul wrote to a young church in Corinth. And if you remember, it was pretty clear last few weeks, this church was quite confused, had various beliefs and views and perspectives on what to do with their bodies. And Paul as he engages them, we've said this week after week, he doesn't lead with ethics, he leads with the gospel. And yet that changes everything. And so at the very end of the last section, after leading with the gospel, this kind of crescendo statement was Paul saying this, so glorify God with your bodies. So glorify God with your bodies. That was the ethics of glory. And we said there are two callings for a Christian to do this. Um, One is the calling of marriage. And we looked at what Paul said last week. 
And this week, we look at the calling of singleness or celibacy. And we're going to see three things this morning. We're going to see a deconstruction around the problem of singleness. We're going to see the goodness of singleness. And lastly, we're going to look at the ground or the hope of singleness. So let me pray and we'll, we'll get in. Father, this morning, uh, we ask you for your help. Illuminate for us the person and work of Jesus, and that that might shape and inform how we treat singleness, how we view singleness, how we live out the callings that you have for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, firstly, a deconstruction. Uh, here's what I mean. Um, one of the clear teachings, both with what Jesus taught and with what we've seen Paul teach, is the Christian sexual ethic was essentially this. Sex was reserved and is for the marriage between a husband and a wife. But that's the one spot where it's, it's for. That's what it's made for. And that means if you're not married, you are to remain chaste. And that calling to say no, that was problematic in Paul's day, and it's also problematic in our day. And to kind of frame it this way, here, here's what I would say is this. In their day and our day, for a person to live a life of abstaining from sex was both back then and today, for different reasons, was to live a life that was not fully realized in other words, it was, in, in a sense, you were missing out on the good life. And so, Paul does something in this passage that actually deconstructs that problem. But let me get into the problems for a moment. And that is this. Back in ancient times, the problem with long-term singleness was this. Honor and value was solely built upon having a family. Uh, if you were somebody... If you wanted to live a meaningful life, it meant you needed to have heirs. You needed to have children. And this was for a couple reasons. One, both for the legacy of your life, what would live on, but secondly, in that day, it was also for security. Who was going to take care of you when you were older? So the problem for singleness in that day was that family, families were ultimate. In fact, it's interesting, one of the Historians talked about how um, Emperor Augustus had widows fined if they failed to marry within two years. So, to be single back then, as Paul writes, to be chaste would be to be live a life of, of one of deprivation. Now, here's what I'll say. One of the things about today's time where we live, I would say sometimes in the church, this is what is kind of, you know, maybe implicitly or sometimes explicitly taught that you have to have a family to matter, okay? Now, here's the thing. In our modern world, here's the problem it has with this. that They have no problem about having a family or not, but the problem comes down to this. You can't really live a meaningful life without sex and romance. So, give you an example. So, Philip Reef, he's a He's a non-Christian sociologist, wrote a book back in the 60s called The Denial of Death. 
And one of the things he talked about our culture is he said this, even though our culture does not believe in a capital T truth, okay, he said this, he said, you still have to live for something. You have to have meaning. And he said this, our culture has done this. It has put its chips in the romantic solution. So you have to have somebody. Now, one example of this, pop culture-wise, haven't seen this movie, not necessarily recommending it, but Steve Carell was in a comedy called The 40-Year-Old Virgin a number of years ago. And the premise of that movie was that he was 40 years old and he was a virgin, and that that was laughable. In the movie, apparently he's treated differently, sometimes like a child. At the very end, of course, the culmination is that he loses his virginity. And the inherent message of that movie is essentially this. If you want to live life, you have to have sex and romance. So just one other thing. One other author commenting on our culture today and the messages we hear He writes this, to ignore this side of us, in other words, sex and romance, is to deliberately not not express and fulfill it, is to actually do harm to ourselves. So that's the message of the culture. So do you see a couple things here? The ancient problem of singleness was family. The modern problem is sex and romance. And Paul does something in this passage that deconstructs both. And it's in verses 29 through 31. And look what Paul says. He says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now I imagine as that passage was being read, and even now it's being read, that's kind of confusing. So you might be sitting there going, okay, is Paul saying to the husbands here, when your wife texts or calls, just live as if you don't have a wife. Don't call back, right? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying to those who have, you know, are really sad, just get over it. Is he saying to those who are really happy, don't worry about it. Don't rejoice. What is Paul saying here? Well, the key comes down to the final phrase because Paul says it's the present form of the world is passing away. And here's what Paul means. Paul is telling them that God has done something in history that has broken in and it's changed everything. And we've seen this throughout the series, but here's what he's done. Jesus came and he preached a kingdom that was breaking in. In other words, all the old things were passing away. A new life was being transformed. And Jesus, through his life, death, and bodily resurrection, had actually started it. It inaugurated it. And that means things have completely shifted. But there's still the old forms. In other words, Jesus has defeated sin, and he has defeated death. But of course, right, there's still death, and there's still sin, but he's defeated it. We still live in a world full of brokenness and suffering, and one day he's going to return, and he's going to heal it. 
but we live in the overlap of the ages. And so here's what that means. Check this. When Paul says, you know, husbands, live with your wives as though you didn't have a, a, a wife. Here's what Paul's saying. When Jesus fully comes back and consummates things, do you understand that there's going to be no marriage in heaven? In other words, that form is for this, this time. But there's a time coming, Jesus says, in which there's not going to be marriage. He says something like this, are you mourning? Realize this, there is a day coming when Jesus is going to wipe every tear from your eye when he returns. And therefore, of course, mourn, but understand that is on borrowed time. Or think about this way, to rejoice as though you were not rejoicing, it means this, are in your life right now, are things good? That is wonderful. Rejoice. But at the same point, do you understand that there's a day coming in which there will be greater joy? And here's what that means. When I talk about deconstruction, it means this. A meaningful, abundant life in this world, because of what Jesus has done, does not ultimately depend on having a family. It doesn't ultimately depend on romance or sex. There's more going on. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has opened up a new world. And here's what that does. Practically, it means you are free to no longer build your ultimate identity on having a family. You are actually free to live in a way in which your value and significance is not based on sex or romance. There is something more absolute in this world that has happened, and it frees you. It allows you to put sex and romance and family in their proper place. You don't overvalue it. You also don't undervalue it. These are good things. But because of the gospel, it allows you to walk in a way that treats them correctly in light of what God has done. So think about for a moment in this way. We have Jesus who never married Never had a family. We've got Paul writing here to this church in Corinth. Never married. Never had sex or romance, right? And would anyone say that their lives were less than fully realized? So uniquely, it's the gospel itself that deconstructs and gives dignity, purpose, and value to the calling of singleness and celibacy. And friends, that was revolutionary in that day. Apart from Christianity, that didn't happen. But it's all because of the gospel. And this is why Paul, as he's writing in Romans 7, the second thing we see is that singleness and celibacy is really good. It's really good. Um, if you would do like just a reading through 1 Corinthians 7, there's a lot there, but one of the reoccurring themes is how much Paul commends singleness. So in verse 6, he says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Paul was single. He's like, I wish you were all like me. Uh, later on, he writes to those who are unmarried, it is good for you to remain single. Uh, later on, at the end of the, the section, Speaking to a situation where 
to, to widows. He says, free to marry, but then he says, in my judgment, you are happier if you remain as you are. So throughout the passage, we just see Paul commending singleness. That it's not this kind of second-class thing or this plan B thing, but it's actually a calling that is good. Now, it almost feels like Paul is like lowering the bar on marriage. Like, come on, guys, just stay single, right? But you have to understand what Paul's doing here. And to get to it, we have to look at verses 6 and 7, because that's the key. So look with me at verse 6 and 7. Paul writes this. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself as I am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So what Paul's talking about there, he's, when he says one has a gift, one of another and one of another, he's talking about two things, marriage and singleness. And he's talking about, therefore, the gift of marriage and the gift of singleness. Now, so let's talk about this gift of singleness because there's a couple misconceptions when we hear it. And the first is, I'll just call it the oven mitt misconception, okay? I'm a fan of The Office, so this is my second illustration with Steve Carell. Sorry, you're going to have to deal with it, okay? But in the early seasons, there's a Christmas episode in which they're doing a, you know, secret Santa, and Phyllis, bless her heart, knits Michael Scott an oven mitt. And Michael Scott, by the way, has given a video iPod to someone, Okay? And he opens up the oven mitt, and he's just enraged. He does not want the oven mitt. In fact, he changes the whole game. They do Yankee swap from here on out, because he doesn't want that, right? So sometimes, when we think about the gift of singleness, if you're single, you might think something like this, that God is a little bit like Phyllis. He doesn't know who I am. He doesn't know what I want. He's maybe foolish, but that's actually an incorrect view of who God is. Think for a moment of Romans where Paul writes, he did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all. How will he not along with him give us all things? In other words, he knows what we need. He hasn't spared his most, you know, his most precious thing, his son, and he's generous. So it's not the oven mitt. But the other kind of view is kind of the superpower, you know, gift. Um, one other notes, it's, it's this kind of special capacity to cope with the gift of singleness. Um, it's the spiritual superpower just to survive. And, you know, here's what's problematic about that. Is that if you're single and you really don't want to be single, then what you could say is, I must not have the gift of singleness, right? But here's the problem with that. Is remember at the very beginning, Paul's talking about both marriage and he's talking about singleness, right? Both of those. So let's put the hat on the married couple. We were there last week. Marriage is not an easy calling. It's not. If you're married, you know that, right? And when it's really hard or when you're really frustrated, Do you ever stop back and you go, I just must not have the gift of marriage. I just must not have the gift. Do you get it? So it's not what Paul is saying. Paul is not saying 
that there's a special capacity to cope with it. So with those two misconceptions out, what is Paul saying here? So Tim Keller writes this, super helpful. He said, Paul always uses the word gift to mean an ability God gives to build others up. Paul is not speaking of some kind of elusive, stress-free state. And that's the key. In other words, singleness is a gift because there's a unique ability with it that you can use to serve others and to serve Christ. Marriage has its own gift in that degree, but, but singleness has something that's very unique with it. And we actually see it later on in verses 32 through 35. Again, another section that's kind of confusing, but listen to what Paul writes. Paul writes, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided, and the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this to your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion. To the Lord. When Paul writes and says that uh, the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interest being divided, in the context here, this is not a negative thing. Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. What Paul is saying is this when you're married, you have a deep covenantal commitment to your spouse. And that means you need to be attentive to them, to their physical needs, to their spiritual needs, their emotional needs. And if the Lord gives you kids, to those as well. It means you have your hands full. There are commitments you have. And therefore, as Paul talks about singleness, what he's saying is, if you're single, you are actually freed up more to serve Christ because you don't have the commitment of marriage or family. So one of the things, um, I've been reading a book, it's a great book uh, called The Seven Myths About Singleness by Sam Albury. Great book. But he's a pastor, and he's actually a pastor who, um, if you know him, he's actually openly shared about his same-sex attraction, but he's remained celibate. And this is what he writes about being single and serving the Lord. He says, I am able to be away from home more easily. I don't have to think about the impact of my absence on a wife or children. When I'm at home, I can be more available to my church. It's easier for me to drop things at a moment's notice. And I'm able to be freer with some of my weekends and evenings. And so you see what Sam's saying there? He's, he's saying if you have singleness, it is a gift to be leveraged in a unique way, whether it be for a particular season or for your whole life, but actually to serve the Lord and to build others up. Well, one of the things, um, you may notice a little bit of the irony of today. You know, we just had this like wonderful like stage full of families and kids and we're talking about singleness, right? I want you to know, I did that intentionally. I mean, it kind of worked out, okay? I couldn't like, but I was really grateful when it did because remember at the very end, where you stood up 
and we talked about committing to these families. Well, some of you are here and you're single. And yet, what are you doing in that moment? You're saying, I'm going to figure out a way how to serve these families and these kids. You're saying, I'm going to free myself up to serve them. That's actually a great picture of the church. Because these families and these kids, they need your help, right? It takes a community. We know that. You know, one of the illustrations that is really helpful uh, in C.S. Lewis's novel, The Great Divorce, it's, it's one in which a narrator is taken by a, a guide around heaven. And um, at one point, he sees this huge, huge gathering of boys and girls. There's this great celebration. And at the center of it all, of this huge celebration, is this beautiful woman. And, and the guide explains to them, on earth, she was unheard of. She was a woman named Sarah Smith, who never had any children. But in heaven, she is one of the great ones. And then the guide says this, every young man or boy that met her became her son. Even it was only the boy who brought the meat to her back door. Every girl that met her was her daughter. Her motherhood was of a different kind. Those on whom it fell went back to their natural parents, loving them more. Lewis, he's trying to capture this picture in the New Testament when Jesus talks in Mark 3 about this new family that supersedes biological families of those in Christ. And the blessing it is to serve, to love, and to support and invest. So singleness, the reason why it's good is because it has a unique ability, unique capacity for a lack of commitment to marriage or family to actually give yourselves in service to others. All right, lastly, the hope. Um, you know, just say this way, if you're, if you're single today, uh, this is, this is going to be one of the most challenging callings of your life. To, to follow Jesus, to say no to what, where the culture is, you know, you need sex and romance, all this stuff, to actually walk with him. How do you, how do you do it? I mean, what does it look like? What resources are there? Well, let me give you two, and they're not necessarily intrinsically in the text, but they're there in big picture. And the first would be, you need, you you, you need the law. That sounds counterintuitive, but you need the law. And here's, here's what I mean. In the classic novel, Jane Eyre, Jane falls in love with Mr. Rochester. And it's only after she falls in love that she finds out that he's married. And he lives with his mentally ill wife who kind of lives in the upper room in his estate. And yet Mr. Rochester urges Jane to live with him as his mistress. And in the novel, there's this inner conflict in Jane's heart. And this is, the, this, this is what it says. While he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in resisting him. 
They spoke almost as loud as feeling, and that clamored wildly. Oh, comply. Think of his misery. Think of his danger. Look at his state when left alone. Remember his headlong nature. Consider the recklessness following on despair. Soothe him. Save him. Love him. Tell him you love him, and, he, and you will be his. Who in the world cares for you or will be injured by what you do? This is a great moment in the novel where right, you hear what's happening on the inside of Jane's heart. And it's run to him, go to him. But then Jane responds to Mr. Rochester this way. She says, I care for myself. The more solitary, the more friendless, the more sustained I am, the more I will respect myself. And note this, I will keep the law given by God, sanctioned by man, I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. Laws and principles are not for the time when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny. And then she writes, so I have always believed, and if I cannot believe it now, it is because I am insane, quite insane, preconceived opinions, foregone determinations, are all I have at this hour to stand by, and there I plant my foot. That is remarkable. Because notice what happens. With all of her emotions, what does she say? I'm not going to follow them. I'm going to submit to something greater. And I know God's law, and it's good. And therefore, I'm going to obey it, even if I don't feel it in the moment. And here's what I would say. If you're single today... When Jane gets to that point in the novel, she did not just become that person. There was something that was cultivated over years and even decades of learning to trust in the goodness of God. Not in a law that saved her, that's not what she believed, but rather in a law that would guide her in where true life is found and would protect her. In other words, there were these deep convictions. And that was my, this would be my plea for you if you're single here today. You need to build deep convictions here in a world that's going to tell you otherwise. You've got to go deep. But secondly, you need grace. Here's what I mean. Several years ago, there was a pastor who kind of threw out the question, um, if you could summarize the Bible in one sentence, how would you summarize it? And there are a lot of responses, but there was one that came back that was just kind of like, really kind of stole the show. And it was by a pastor named Doug Wilson. And, he, and it was six words. The entire Bible summed up in six words. Kill the dragon, get the girl. Kill the dragon, get the girl. And here's what that means. The dragon, back in Genesis, was the serpent, Satan. When you get to the end of Revelation, is a mighty dragon. The girl is God's people, the church. And the hero of the story who kills the dragon is Jesus. He's the dragon slayer who comes to lay his life down 
to rise from the grave. And in the end, right, in the end, he defeats the dragon in Revelation. But we've been talking about this throughout the series. Do you know what happens in the end between the hero and the girl? They get married. That's what happens. Revelation 19, the wedding feast of the Lamb. They get married. And here's what that means. It's a picture, it's a metaphor, but it's trying to tell you something. It's trying to show you of the overflowing love of God that waits you in the person of Jesus, who is your future spouse. In other words, Keller writes this. This is what it means. The greatest romance or greatest sex or best family does not compare and cannot fill our deepest longings, but only meeting Christ face to face will fill the emptiness in our hearts. And friends, that's not merely a concept. Ephesians 3 says actually that's something that can be experienced. Two final exhortations to those who are single today. One is, if you desire to be married, just know that's a good thing. It's okay. It's okay to desire that. Paul, throughout this passage, is, you're free to marry, you're free to marry. That's a good thing. It's good to desire that. Second thing I'd say is, some of you might in this moment, or maybe have thought for some time, that you are being called to this not in the short term, it might not just be a season, but it might actually be the long term. And what I would just say to you is I would want you to hear over and over again that this is good, that we actually do need people who will walk out that life, serve Christ, serve the church, and live for his glory without the commitments of marriage and family. And that is good and that is honorable. That's what Paul did. That's what Jesus did. It's commendable. All right. We are at the very end of the series. And I think it's appropriate to just for a moment just have a word with those who are part of Redeemer City Church. So glad many of you are here today visiting. But I want to just kind of sum up this series. And I want to call us to something. And three things, I want to call us up, I want to call us in, and I want to call us out, all right? So up, what do I mean by that? I want to call us to be a congregation who's grounded in Scripture as the authority on these things, who roots themselves in the text What does this say? What does this mean? And not add to it and not subtract to it, but walk in it. And therefore, that we would uphold the historic Christian's view on sexual ethics. Just one note, the elder team over the last several months has been working on a human sexuality statement. And that is not a statement that has changed anything here. But rather, it seeks to clarify what the scriptures teach. So two weeks ago, our leaders got it. A week ago, or last week, we sent it out to our members. Um, the elder team will be following up with members over the next couple of weeks. Um, if you're interested, we'll post it on the Slack channel today. There's also some physical copies in the back by the offering box if you want to check it out. 
But here's the, here's the point. We want to be a church that's united on its mission to renew our city through the gospel. That's why we did that. So that's living up, being faithful to scripture. Secondly, living in. Um, in the last couple of weeks, we've talked about marriage and we've talked about singleness. And we've talked about how each of those callings right, have unique gifts, but they're also very difficult. And therefore, we need one another. And I would almost put this more, this is interesting, I would almost put this more on like the married couples and the families here because that's the dominant demographic, right? But I would say, how do you reach out? How do you provide hospitality for those who are not married? How do you welcome them into your house and your home and your family? It's really important. Here's part of it is this. If we were to live this out, one of my friends wrote this, that we would be a place where marriages would flourish as a picture of Jesus' relationship to the church, and yet also a place where marriage and family would not be an idol. And on the other hand, single Christians would live out their callings without feeling confined to a life of loneliness, but find deeply devoted friendships as full members of Jesus' family. So we're called up, we're called in, and lastly, we're called out. Listen, think about Jesus for a moment. If you read his teachings, he could not be any more narrow and clear about his sexual ethic. I mean, it's just so clearly there. He's so clear what he taught. And yet, what was remarkable is that those who were the outcasts of the day, those who weren't following the ethic, right? They found themselves compelled by him. They found his life, just who he was and how he welcomed them. They wanted to be around him. And that means this is the one we follow, Redeemer City. We follow this Jesus. And that means we ought to be a community where non-Christians, no matter their sexual orientation, no matter their history, are given space and time and a place to pursue their questions and doubts in a community of grace and love. And friends, that is stretching. That is going to be stretching, but that is our calling. And let me just close here. Let me be clear. We are not going to live this out perfectly, right? We're going to get those things wrong in different ways, but here's the call. It's going to be messy, but our eyes are to be on Jesus, knowing that his grace is more than sufficient to meet us. And as we do, we're called to live in such a way where we glorify God with our bodies so that, this, so that one another and this world might see the shape of the gospel and the sufficiency of it. Let's pray. Father, we are um, in need uh, today of your help. Lord, where there is um, pain and hurt, in light of this series, would you bring your healing hand? <laughs> Lord, where there is uh, a stretching of obedience that you're calling us to, that is a new way of living uh, for us, would you give grace to help us walk in that? 
And Lord, where there is a past that might be littered with regret and remorse or whatever might be there, would you apply the great news of the gospel that there is no longer any condemnation, that you've blotted out our transgressions, and when we walk out as a community looking to you and following you, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.